Good morning. We certainly welcome you to Mount Horror Baptist Church online worship service. And we welcome you and those of you hearing all over the United States and the world, we welcome you and we pray that God's word will speak to your heart. The title of my message is The Cross in the Old Testament. Scripture is Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, but we're going to be looking at other scriptures also. About a thousand years before Jesus came to earth, the prophets of Israel predicted the coming of the Messiah, an eternal king to rule the people. They predicted the cross, and even before the horrible practice of crucifixion had even been invented. Their prophecy was both specific and memorial. Christ clearly fulfilled the suffering servant as Isaiah told in the 53rd chapter of his book. Some people, when they hear the term prophecies, think about those unbelievable cycle newspapers found at grocery stores, checkout counters, with screaming headlines about Hollywood stars, UFO sightings, alien invasions. But in the interplay of the Old Testament and New Testament, we find something that is truly incredible, yet truthful. We find scores and scores of written statements, documents, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ that he fulfilled. Many of these statements points to his death and resurrection. Indeed, Jesus fulfilled many prophecies of the Old Testament as prophesied. He came from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. He came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and more specifically from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. Furthermore, he was from the house of David, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and was given the throne of David in Psalms 132, verse 11. He was born of a virgin mother, Isaiah 7, 14, and in the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5, verse 2. And his throne has become an everlasting throne, Psalms 45, verse 6. And all of these things were written about him hundreds of years before he was born. There are two Old Testament passages in particular that take us to the foot of the cross, Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53. So as we look in this message today, we will look at the first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. And in Psalm 22, we will describe his crucifixion. And in Isaiah 53, we will describe its meaning. Meanwhile, there are multitudes of other prophecies scattered throughout the Old Testament that deal with the cross or the events leading up to it. For instance, the Old Testament says that the Messiah would become a high priest greater than Aaron in the order of Melchizedek, Psalms 110 verse 4. Old Testament priests offered animals before God, shedding blood to atone for sin, and all these sacrifices were shadows of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our high priest, who offered himself as a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of of the whole world. After the cross, he would be raised from the dead, Psalm 16, verse 10. Then he would experience the triumphant effects of his cross and resurrection. In Psalm 68, verse 18, 
It says that he would ascend to heaven. Psalms 110 verse 1, he would be seated at God's right hand. Psalms 2 verse 9, he would become a sceptical. And Psalms 2 verse 8, he would rule the Gentiles. So we see that Christ fulfilled all sorts of prophecies in his life, but he also fulfilled many by his death. And we'll focus on those today. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will touch our hearts and move us closer to thee. We pray, Lord, if someone hearing this message today will receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life so that they will have eternal life. We pray now that we let your Holy Spirit open up our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first promise of the gospel. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, or God says, and God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the cross we find in the Old Testament. The first gospel, that wondrous promise given by God to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the only perfect place man has ever known. That glorious paradise God created for them, where they had marvelous relationships with their Creator, with one another, and with their environment. Then disaster failed. The man and woman sinned and disobeyed God. Their skies turned black. Their souls became gloomy and gloom hung over them like a thick cloud. Sin had entered like venom into the veins of the human race. And with sin came death. But in the midst of that gloomy blackness, there appeared a single star. A star of prophetic hope, a star of promise. God says that the seed of the woman would destroy the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would wound the heel of the seed of the woman. What does the seed of the woman mean? In all scripture, there's no other person called the seed of the woman. Everyone else is a begotten man. You can look in the genealogies of Christ. We read how Abraham begot Isaac, who begot Jacob, who begot so-and-so, who begot David, who begot so-and-so and so-and-so. But Matthew lists one man after another until we finally read this. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus who is called Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Notice the scripture didn't say Jacob begot Joseph, but Joseph begot Christ. It didn't say that. It said the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. In the long history of the human race, there is the single exception of Christ, the only one not begotten by man. Why? Because he was the seed of the woman. His father was God by the Holy Spirit. That promise was given to our first parents and to their children and grandchildren. And it spread with them throughout the entire world. 
And so after man plunged into sin through Adam's rebellion, we found ourselves in a hopeless state. Thank God he didn't leave us there. Instead, he gave us the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman, which is Christ, would destroy the head of the serpent. There would be the seed of the woman, Christ, who would come into the world and destroy the works of Satan. Christ accomplished this upon the cross. When Christ was crucified, his heel was wounded. But in the process, he crushed the head of the serpent. Back in the Garden of Eden, the man and woman had clothed themselves in fig leaf aprons of their own making. People have been doing much the same ever since. Because one of the results of the fall of man was shame at our nakedness. Man retains the element of shame because of his sin, and he tries to cover it up himself. In our case, we put on fig leaves of our self-righteousness, our piety, our morality, our church-going, our commandment-keeping, benevolence, and whatever it is. They're all fig leaves. They won't really cover our shame and nakedness at all. But then we read how God made a coat of skin. And no notice this. God had to kill an animal, and the animal's blood was sacrificed so God could take the skins and cover the man and woman with them. This is a foreshadowing of the great covering God would provide in his own son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the Lamb of God who would be slain and would raise again to clothe us with the white robes of his own perfect righteousness. Jesus was the only one who ever lived a perfect life. He was the second Adam. He succeeded where the first Adam failed. Now we can be clothed with the white robes of perfection righteousness of Jesus Christ and be cleansed by his blood, faultless to stand before God. The throne of God. We can be given a new nature, and this new nature does indeed love God, love our neighbors, and desire to do good to humanity. Only through the power of the gospel and the regeneration power of the Holy Spirit is there any hope for this nation and for this world. It is a glorious hope, and it is a hope promise and foreshadowed for us right here in the third chapter of Genesis, verse 15, it is a magnificent, marvelous story. And friends, we can pray this prayer. We can say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son who crushed the head of the serpent, even though his own heel and hands inside it were bruised, pierced, and nailed. Amen. The cross is in Psalms 22. So if you have your Bibles, turn for a moment to Psalms 22. We will find uncannily description that essentially take us to the foot of the cross. In Psalm 22, David describes his own sufferings. When David describes his own sufferings, he foretells the greater event to come some hundreds of years later. David had come to the throne of Israel in, in 110 B.C. And because of the prophecies in Psalm 22, which were later fulfilled, his words provide a clear example of the inspiration of the Scriptures 
only an inspired word would be able to prophesize all things contained in this psalm. Some scholars have said that you can take the psalm and lay it side by side with the New Testament accounts of the crucifixion of Christ and see how they dovetail perfectly. Let's examine this psalm. The psalm opens up with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Immediately, we are plunged into the depths of Christ's anguish on the cross, the agony of his crucifixion and those hours of darkness. Christ has, as it were, descended into the very blackness of hell, and God has poured out his wrath upon him after man has done his worst. I've heard preachers say, as Christ done his work. Now, verse 1 also contains, Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? This is a unique cry. Maybe you've never realized this before, but Jesus rarely refers to God as my God. He almost always refers to him as my Father, but not here. Why? Just think. What would it mean to endure hell? What would it be like to endure hell for a world of sinners? Jesus was finding out this is what caused him the night before to extrude blood through his pores, the absolute unbelievable agony of enduring the wrath of God. So mind-boggling, so staggering, so vast in his pain that God seemed to have forsaken him, and he did. I've heard many liberal preachers say, Jesus just thought God forsook him, but of course he did not. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Christ was made sin, and God cannot look upon sin. God turned his head on his only begotten son. Jesus being forsaken by God is what the cross is all about. Jesus was God forsaken in order that you and me might not be. In such blinding, numbering agony, his human nature cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Everyone had forsaken him, but most importantly, God the Father had forsaken him. David continues in verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my drawers. You have brought me to the dust of death. And so we see all of Christ's bones out of joint an indication of the agonies of crucifixion, which tended to pull the bones out of joint in the body as a person hung upon a cross. And we see intimidation of his cry, I, I thirst, when David speaks of his tongue clinging to his jaws and his strength being dried up. David continues in verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all of my bones. They looked and stared at me. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This indicates that he was stationary on the cross. Christ was stationary on the cross cross while others were around him. Then we see the terrible means of Christ being affixed to the cross. The soldiers had stripped him naked, and with his bones all being 
pulled out of joint. There he hangs on the cross in his shameful position of nakedness and horror and agony before the crowd, many of whom were just standing there watching this horrible spectacle. We see the prophecy of what the soldiers did with his robe while Jesus hung naked on the cross. In verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Then there comes the most amazing prophecy fulfilled at the cross, and that is in verses 27 and 28. Listen, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. That's the most amazing prophecy fulfilled. You know what? When hundreds, millions of Christians attend church worldwide or listen on the web worldwide, you know that we help fulfill this very prophecy of all the ends of the world, remembering his death on our behalf every Sunday, on his behalf every Sunday. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being spread into every nation, even in places where it's highly illegal. So we are fulfilling verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. The families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. And we can pray, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for our sins, sins of the whole world, so that we can be saved. Then turn, if you will, to the cross in Isaiah chapter 53. The Hebrew prophet Isaiah explains the cross meaning. King David, you're just a few moments ago in Psalm 22, takes us to the foot of the cross. And Isaiah explained its meaning to us. Jesus did not die in agonizing death. He accomplished something meaningful through that agonizing death. One of the most remarkable passages of the Old Testament, which speaks so clearly about Jesus Christ, is Isaiah 53. And I think it is interesting that this passage of Isaiah 53 is virtually never read in the Jewish synagogues today. Why? Why? Because it so evidently points to Jesus Christ that it is an embarrassment for them to read it. Why? Because they are still looking for the Messiah to rule the earth. They believe that the Messiah has not come yet. They were looking for a king to rule the earth. Jesus came as a suffering servant. And then in verse 6 in this psalm, All we like sheep have gone astray. Picture sheep running jumping along the hills, stupidly falling over cliffs, getting themselves entangled, falling into rivers and drowning. That's what we're like, according to verse 6 in this chapter. We have turned to our own way. I remember years ago, Frank Sinatra sang a song, and it was entitled, I Did It My Way. And that statement is repeated by many who ultimately drive their life into a ditch, if not in this world, then in the eternal ditch. 
Christ was the one that was oppressed and afflicted for us, as it says in verse 5. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We know that he was crucified between two thieves, and in the grave of Joseph of Arinthia, and rich, a rich man, he was buried. So the prophecy was fulfilled in every detail. Verse 9 says, And they made his grave with wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And in verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him, they portion with the great, and he shall divide the small with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And listen to this. He was numbered with the transgressions. Pause. And he bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressions. Yes, it pleases the Lord to bruise him in verse 10. Not because it was pleasant, but because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John three sixteen. Christ gave his life, a ransom for many. The Jews in the Old Testament knew the Messiah would be a great high priest to offer sacrifices, but they never dreamt that he would offer himself as a sacrifice. Why did Jesus come? Isaiah tells us why. He came to bear our sins, our sins, our sorrows, our shortcomings. He came to be struck down by God and to be afflicted on our behalf. Here are 16 things that Christ did for us in this psalm. He endured indignities without complaint. Verses 7 and 8. He bore our sins. Verses 4 and 5. He suffered being stricken, smitten, afflicted of God for us. Verse 4. Was slain for our sins. In verse 5. Chastised for our peace. In verse 6. Bruised for our iniquities. Verses 5 and 10. He endured the stripes for our healing. Verse 5. He bore all our iniquities. Verse 6. 11 through 12. He suffered injustice for us, verse 8, was cut off in death for our transgressions, verses 8 and 12. He put to grief by our God for us, verse 10. He offered his soul as a sin offering, in verse 11. He traveled in soul for us, verse 11. He purchased justification for us, in verse 4. He was numbered with transgressions in our place, verse 12. He made intercession for us, in verse 12. Christ did this for you, you, you and me. And our prayer should be, Lord, we confess that we are like sheep, have gone our own way, but we thank you that you didn't leave us there. Instead, you came looking for us. You sent the good shepherd. Jesus Christ, your Son, and let him bear our iniquities in our place. Praise the Lord. As we look at this service today, we have looked at where the cross is first mentioned in the Bible, which is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we looked in Psalms 22, where David takes us to the foot of the cross. And then in Isaiah 53, where we are given the meaning of the cross, let me share with you Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as it was our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him or appreciate or honor him.
But there's one little sentence in here I want to share with you. My question to you, did you hide your face from him? Have you rejected him for what he did for you on the cross? Jesus paid the ultimate price for your sins and my sins. And all you have to do is accept Christ as your Lord and Savior of your life. Well, pastor, what does all that mean? Just simple. I make it just as simple as I can. To make him Lord of your life means putting Christ number one. Letting the Holy Spirit rule in your heart, turning 180 degrees and go in the direction of Christ. Move your life to that, your heart to that. To make him Savior of your life means laying all your sins, the sins that you did in the past, present, and even if you sin in the future. Put it on him so that you will be saved. Pastor, what am I saved from? You'll be saved from eternal wrath of God. When I say eternal, it means when you die, you will be where God's wrath will be forever and ever. You know, this lockdown that we have now because of the coronavirus, many, many people are living alone. And even couples in a house, you get lonely. And you know what? Sometimes, you know, as I look at Scripture and study God's Word, that might be what hell is like. Being alone, never communicating to anybody. They're sitting there being tortured by your memories. You know, I heard the Word of God. Why didn't I accept Christ as my Lord and Savior? I could have done that, and I could be in heaven, in paradise. But no, I turned my face against the cross against Christ, and here I am, being tortured, because the Bible says that you're going to have memory in hell, but you know what, you don't have to do that, Christ died in your place, he went to hell for you, he rose again, which broke Satan's power, and broke his head. If you have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior of your life, I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to, to come and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Ask for forgiveness of your sins. Ask Christ to come into your heart by the way of the Holy Spirit. And let me know. Make a comment. Put your email address on that and let me know. If you've made that decision, go and tell somebody. You see, we do this because in Matthew 10, 32, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever confessed me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So tell somebody. Go to your local pastor and tell him. Or give me your email. Tell me of your decision and I will... Give me your email address in the comments and I will get back in touch with you. When you do this and follow him in baptism, we believe that you have been saved. Let us pray. Our Father God, we praise your name for scripture. Lord, we, we just, it's just mind-boggling of everything in your word points 
to the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. It points to the resurrection. And that's why Satan was defeated, because of your resurrection. And if we believe in you, we will also defeat death. We'll be with you in paradise. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will touch some hearts today. We pray, Lord, as we close this service today upon those nurses and doctors that are on the front line. We ask that you'll protect them from the disease. We pray that you'll give them strength to administer to the patients. We pray, Lord, for the patients who have the, the virus. We pray for a speedy recovery. We pray for those, Lord, whose loved ones have died because of the virus. We pray that you may fill their empty hearts up. We pray, Lord, also for those in the hospital that have other concerns. We pray for them, those who died natural deaths. We pray for their loved ones, Lord, as they grieve their time. We ask that you'll be with them. We pray, Lord, for our national and state leaders. We pray that they will make the right decisions. We pray, God, for our military, uh, those who are first responders, our Rescue squad workers, Lord, our firemen, our local police, state police, Lord, our, and our military. We pray for all of them. And we just thank you, God, that we can come to a God that hears prayer. And we pray, Lord, that our nation will turn around, that maybe this is a lesson that we need to learn, that we will turn around, get back into your word, and we'll start worshiping and asking for your mercies. Lord, we pray now that someone will hear this message today and accept you as Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings of life and eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.